You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 179 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. This week we are talking all about Ferdinand Pieck. He is the car industry titan who was responsible for the Porsche 917, um, the Bugatti Veyron, the Audi Quattro, the VW Phaeton, all sorts of others. He transformed the fortunes of Audi and of Volkswagen. He's part of the Porsche dynasty, that family. Uh, His is an extraordinary tale. Now, from time to time, we pick one individual, one of these just incredible characters from the car industry, and do a full episode on them. Most recently, it was Colin Chapman, episode 167, if you want to go back and listen to our podcast on the Lotus founder. Um, But this time, it's Ferdinand Pieck. I hope you enjoy listening. Before we get started, I will remind you to rate and review the podcast. Please do that. And however you're listening to the podcast, please just very quickly subscribe or follow. Hit the follow button or the subscribe button. It really, really helps us. Um, Okay, let's get stuck in to this episode. Ferdinand Karl Pieck, born 17th of April 1937, died quite recently, actually, 25th of August 2019. Um, Mm. But we've chosen him, Andrew, because he is, goodness me, a, a fascinating character, one of these titans of the car industry. And you can look at him in so many different ways. His achievements were fantastic. He had some fairly epic failures um and he yeah, was yeah but he failed for the right reasons even his failures <laughs> were good failures he sort of failed upwards didn't he yeah um, absolutely and, and a very tricky character by the sounds of it anyone who knew him or spent time with him says so um and also part of the porsche dynasty it's just it's like he was scripted yeah i mean i was thinking when we decided to do this i was i was mindful my mind went back to that brilliant two-part piece mel nichols did for us about bob lutz yeah, um, and his extraordinary contribution to the car industry in the late twentieth and early twenty first century. But PX bigger than that, isn't he? I mean, oh, in terms of the influence that he's had on the global car industry. So, I mean, you could say Enzo Ferrari, but you know, Enzo Ferrari created one company which has never sold very many cars. Mm. You know, PX not only well, we'll get into the things he did in racing, I'm sure, but he also, you know saved Volkswagen and turned it into this colossal, the largest car company on earth. Mm. Um, no one, surely, in mm. terms of his influence on the business that, you know, for which we're all, you know, earn our livings, is, 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 is bigger or greater or more interesting or important than Pierre. That's right. And that's why he's such a fascinating um, subject for a podcast like this. Yeah. Um, he was born in Vienna, Austria. So he, he was an Austrian. Um, yes. And he was the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche. Yeah, um, the yeah. great engineer who created, created um, the original Volkswagen Beetle, Auto Unions, 1930s Grand Prix cars. Um, yeah. And, and so he, he is one of these very rare guys, but there, there are a few of them. 
as part of the Porsche dynasty who was associated or connected to the companies that they worked in and ultimately led by blood. They, yeah. they were in the families. Yeah. People forget. Um, I mean, he's as much a Porsche as Ferry Porsche. Yeah. It's only because, you know, Ferdinand had a son and a daughter. He may have had more, but he had Ferry and he also had Louise mm. who married a banker called Pieck. Yeah. Yeah. Anton Pieck. So, yeah. So, you know, so, so, so Ferdinand Pieck's mother was Louise Porsche. Mm. Mm. So he's so, a yeah, Porsche, so absolutely a Porsche. He is, he is a pure Porsche, yeah. Um, and actually, so was it nepotism that allowed him to rise through the ranks of the companies that he worked in? I mean, it must have helped. Crucially, being a Porsche gave him authority and probably confidence to make big decisions, make big changes. Yeah, um, I don't think confidence was anything he, he, he was ever particularly lacking. No. I don't think that he was one of those guys who kind of like struggled when he got up in the morning and said, oh, I'm not sure I should yeah. say this. So I think, yeah, I think yeah. he was always fairly, fairly sure of his ground. But maybe that comes through his, his breeding, you know, if, as part of the Porsche yeah. family. You're fairly untouchable, aren't you? But yeah, you, you have to balance that out with the fact that he was a great engineer a visionary engineer you know he wasn't a, a chancer who blagged his way along in life on the strength of his name no um he was brilliant he was absolutely anything but the sort as you what you say yeah somebody who just used family connections to get on in the world mm. um you know i think that if 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 a person that talented and that and the other thing was you need two things don't you you need to be talented and you need to be driven yeah yeah. Uh, and you need well three things, and you you need also not to be, um, you know, not to be worried about what people think about you. There's a wonderful quote, wasn't it? My desire for harmony is limited. There you go. He says that's from his autobiography. Yeah, as I says it all. So I mean, that's just, I mean, if you've got that, if you just don't care, yeah, you can do anything, can't you? Imagine you can say anything to anyone, are. and you just don't care. Yeah. And it must be so liberating. Um, I'm not sure that necessarily makes you a particularly nice person, but you know mm. we're not here to discuss his um, his attributes in that respect. We're just here to you know, to talk about his contribution to to this industry. And you know, if you really, really don't care what people think about you, you know that's a massive, massive strength, isn't it? It really is. Okay, so let's. <clears throat> I'm going to trot through his career. Um, just so that people know exactly what we're talking about, what kind of guy we're dealing with. And then we'll get into the specifics. Um, so he studied mechanical engineering um, and he started working at Porsche in 1963. Do you know, he was actually only there for eight years. Um, but during that time, he led the development of the 917, um, which we'll come on to. He then, in the early 70s, moved to Audi. He was engineering chief and then chief executive from 1988 until 1993, um, when he left for the VW Group. Uh, so overseeing the group as a whole, um, and he was ultimately chairman of the company's super supervisory board. So he was the big boss, and he wielded unusual power and influence, actually in every role that he ever held. Those are the, the, the Porsche, Audi, and then all of VW Group. They were really the three big roles that he held. And... We have to go back to Porsche, um, which is as a young engineer, where he really started making a name for himself as if he didn't already have enough of one. Um, and his first big win, really, was the 917, wasn't it? Yeah, but he'd been involved before that. You know, I know that he was, and I don't know whether this was a consultant or it must have been before he technically arrived there, but he was the bloke who said the flat stick shouldn't have a wet sump engine. Um, because if it had a wet sump engine, you get oil surge. And if you got oil surge, it'd be fine on the road, but it meant you couldn't race it. So that flat six came to market with a dry sump engine. 911 started racing then. Just imagine what, how different the history of that company. In fact, frankly, the history of racing would be if 911 never raced. Um, yeah. And Blimey. yeah. And then, yeah, and, and then he was, you know, he was involved, you know, he was, I think he was fairly instrumental in the creation of the Berg Spider too. Yes, this three hundred eighty-five. This was nineteen sixty-eight, so this was pre nine seventeen. This three hundred eighty-five kilo car, with its beryllium brakes and mm. all the insanity that went into it. Um, I think I'm right. It wasn't it cooled by dry ice because it didn't need a radiators or anything else because it, it was just a hill climb car, so it would never need to. Yeah. Um, 
and it had all these other you know it didn't have a fuel pump because it had a pressurized fuel tank it was just it was just a really really clever car and then as you say yeah the 917 i mean that we could maybe we've even done it actually an episode entirely on the 917 because it's a hell of a tale um but i mean fundamentally it was the it was the car that earned porsche its first outright victory at le mans and its second first in yeah. 1970 again in 1971 yeah um but what are the sort of highlights of the 917 i mean it was led the engineering of that car was led by ferdinand Pieck. um but the, the rules around um, sports car racing at that time, um, it, they were structured in such a way that a car company would have to build what was thought to be a prohibitive number of cars yeah. to satisfy the regulations. And it was yeah. Pierre and Porsche who just said, okay, well, let's build them. Let's build the yeah. 25 cars that yeah. we have to, have to make, and then we can build this monstrous machine. So that so the history of it goes back to you know Ford um, winning Le Mans with these seven liter monsters in 1966 and 1967, um, and the speeds were getting ridiculous and it was all getting a bit out of hand. So the FIA just said, okay, no more prototypes. Um, mm. If you're gonna if you're gonna do a car which you want to race at the top level, you've got to build 25 of them, knowing that nobody would. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and lo and behold. Um, you know, um, they did. And, you know, there's that famous photograph, isn't it, of 25 yeah. 917s all lined up uh, at Vysak, um for inspection. You know, little did the inspector know that, I don't know how many of them were actually properly built. I mean, I think almost all of them had to be dismantled and put back together again because basically they'd just been, they were just a collection of parts which mm. had been turned into something which looked like a 917. But, yeah. Um, and, and then the rest of it... Um, and I said this before about Porsche engineering. What was so remarkable about it was how unremarkable they were. Mm. You know, this was a time when, you know, Lola had been using monocoque chassis in sports cars for years. I mean, Jaguar had used them in the 50s. Um, Porsche stayed with the space frame. They had quite slow, clunky six-speed gear, um, sorry, synchromesh gearboxes. Uh, the air-cooled engines um, really, really limited what they could get in terms of power. Um, you couldn't have a four-valve per cylinder cylinder head. Um, whereas if you use water, then you could have done, so they didn't have that. Um, and yet, they got more power from a four, an air-cooled 4.5-litre flat 12 than Ferrari could get from a water-cooled 5-litre V12. Um, and the cars were lighter, um, quicker, better, faster, everything you like, despite the fact that there was technically nothing particularly clever on them. They just took everything, to, particularly lightness, to the ultimate extreme. Um, and, yeah, th- th- that is what is so remarkable about the car, those cars, is that they were so little. There was no revolution about those cars mm. at all. They were just unbelievably good, quite conventional cars. I, it's hard to understand how that even happened in the first instance. I mean, Porsche, had it been racing in the top category at Le Mans before, or was the 917 really its first attempt well it, it had been racing in the top category at Le Mans but only because the top category was basically a three liter category so what they'd said yeah. was if you want a car a prototype it's got to be three liters or less mm. and if you and that's mm. why the GT40 won in 1968 and 1969 because you know they made stacks of GT40s sold them to customers mm. um, and they, so what you could do then is you could if you built more than this 25 then you could have uh, a five liter engine and off you go that was the gt40 um but porsche hadn't got that so they had the 908 um yeah. which came within 100 yards of winning le mans in 1969 um and should have won it in 1968 yeah they'd had lots of goes you know they had won you know the 908 won every single other major sports car race by that time it had won the target flurry it had won the daytona 24 hours um, it had won the Nürburgring 1000 case. Every single major sports car race had been won by a three-litre Porsche, um, but not the one that they that they really, really wanted. And mm. even the 917 failed at the first attempt in 69. It led for 21 hours um, with uh, our mate Richard Atwood and Vic Elford driving it, and then it and then it broke when it was I can't remember how many laps it was in the lead, but it it it, it had an insuperable uh, advantage over everything else, and then yeah, it broke. So mm. yeah, and then after that, they they never looked back. So Pierre was in his early 30s when he led the development of the 917, which is just amazing, actually. But Mm. what I really want to know is why did Ferrari, how did Ferrari allow itself to be beaten by a relative upstart in Porsche? Okay, 
You know, it didn't have Ferrari's legacy um, and this 30-something-year-old engineer. Do you know what? I'm glad you asked. Um, (laughs) There there were a couple of reasons. Firstly, Ferrari, like everybody else, didn't see the 917 coming. Yeah. And so Ferrari's response to it, the 512S, um, was a compromised car. They actually, what is sad about that particular story is they did finally do the car the 512S should always have been. Um, and it was called the 512M, the Modificato. Um, but because that, so they, they produced that car right at the end of 1970, when it was meant to have raced as a works car in 1971. But by then, um, the FIA got wise to what Porsche were up to, and they said, right, for 1972, is a blanket three litres limit. And Ferrari thought, well, what's the point of, you know, of racing this five litre car when we know we're going to have to go to three litres in 1972? So the 512M was basically just used by a very small number of privateer cars. But there was one race at the end of 1970 it did, and it blew the 917s away. Um, but anyway, so to answer your question, so that's one top, but they were rushed into it. The other problem that Ferrari had, uh, and it was a unique problem for Ferrari, and I think it changed the way that people have gone racing almost ever since, certainly until the present day, is Ferrari was fighting on two fronts. They were trying to maintain top-level presence in both Formula One and sports car racing. And their resources, mm. their financial resources and their talent resources were just hopelessly divided. And I think probably the 917 um, was the car which made Ferrari realise that they couldn't fight on all fronts. So they did, they did do it, you know, 1972, 1973 with the 312 PB, their last great successful sports car. Um, but they were hopeless in Formula One then. So uh, mm. that's it. I think, I think it's those two factors. They didn't see it coming and they were trying to do too many things with their resources. Yeah, so the 917, yeah, fascinating. A, a, a really successful racing car and just brilliantly executed, but n- nothing on it really that was fantastically innovative or, you know, n- no groundbreaking new technologies, really. No. Um, it's just a beautifully done car. Just a beautifully done, incredibly light, very slippery. I mean, you know, mm. the, the aero was very challenging on it. Um, as we know, 1969, it was, you know, Richard Albert famously said it went from, you know, over the winter of 1969 to 1970, it went from the worst car I'd ever driven to the best. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just because, you know, they were, they, they were just pushing the envelope on aero, on the, you know, on the, uh, just trying to get the drag coefficient as low as humanly possible and the car just wasn't stable. But they sorted that out. Um, but no, it had you know it had sort of polyester bodywork. It had a tubular space frame, mm. two valves per cylinder engine. No, no miracles there. It was only really yeah. when they went to Can Am and they turbocharged it that was pretty cutting edge then mm. Um, mm. to have turbo racing cars. But that's you know that was something completely different, and that wasn't that was. In fact, I think that happened after Pierre had left. I think he'd already buggered off to Audi by then. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking now about his big achievements, his sort of crowning glories, and the nine seventeen is certainly one of them. Um, and I guess the Audi Quattro is another, only a few mm. years later. Um, so well, and the, and the, well, can we talk about the 100, which predated the Quattro? Yeah, oh, if it came first, yeah. Yeah, um, predated the Quattro. You know, that was the first Audi with a five-cylinder engine. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, you just, you know, f- the idea of a five-cylinder engine was just, was just bizarre because it was apparently impossible to balance. Well, they found a way and they created this amazing engine with this wonderful soundtrack and they put it in the most aerodynamic car that had ever been built. The original Audi 100, I think it used to have its drag coefficient and like a sticker in one of the re- in, in a rear quarter light or something. It used to say CD 0.30 whatever because it was so it was so slippery and 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 you know and the thing was that Audi in the 1970s was a it was a complete nothing company. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, we think of Audi today and you know we 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 kind of think of the premium German mass market manufacturers and oh, BMW, Audi, Mercedes. Mm, they're on a like level up then. Yeah. yeah, wasn't like that then at all. And it was Pieck who started that process yeah. with cars like the Audi 100, which was beautiful and clever and innovative. Uh, and then let's, you know, let's get on to the Quattro because that was the next thing he did, um, mm. which was groundbreaking and to an extent changed the way that people thought about Sports cars certainly changed the way people thought about how to go rallying. Yeah. Oh, goodness me. So, yeah, I mean, four-wheel drive, we're talking late 1970s now. Four-wheel drive used on maybe farm equipment. Um, yeah, Land Rovers. Mi- military machinery, mm. Land Rovers. 
yeah it was <laughs> okay i've got to do my usual shout out here. yes i know i know i knew that was coming <laughs> jensen ff sorry <laughs> but that was like a flash in the pan 1968 yeah i think so anyway yeah. but yes absolutely yeah but I mean, it, it certainly jensen... wasn't used on sort of absolutely you know upmarket road cars or performance cars no. was it no not at all but the, it, it's funny because the benefits seem obvious the traction benefits of driving all four wheels rather than just the front or the rear wheels it's it doesn't take any great leap of imagination to realize that there would be a benefit there mm. um but it did take um a handful of engineers led by piek to actually make it happen on a uh, I on think, an upmarket performance road car i think and someone will far clever and better informed than me will tell us why it was i think that there was a technical challenge I think it was for some reason yeah. really difficult to do a high performance. Maybe it was refinement, mm, something like that. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. with the transfer from you know, the power from the front to the back and to the front, and you know, directing. You've got an engine, a longitudinal engine, with a gearbox at the back, so the power comes out the back of the gearbox, which is in the middle of the car. You then yeah. got to get it back to the front of the car and rearward. So I mean, it, it, it's not a nothing thing to do. No. Um. So yeah, um, but he did it. They did it. They made it work. And so the Audi Quattro road car. I mean, I drove. I drove one a few years ago actually. And it's, what do you um, think? Um, I mean, I, I love driving it because it's it's a different generation. It's a significant car. But y- you wouldn't choose one to blast over a mountain road. It's a sort of no. understeery, fairly numb kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, they did they did get a lot better because um, I think the early cars had like a fixed 50-50 torque split mm. and then they got a torsion centre differential and then they obviously got the 20-valve engine and so the last ones were massively better than the first. But yes, they they, they still were fundamentally imbalanced. They had, you know, I think their enti- the entire engine um, was slung out in front of the front wheels. Um, they, mm. were, they were quite, they had quite a lot of turbo lag. Um but they caught they caught a moment, didn't they? And they became incredibly popular. Well, they did, and also they just changed rallying for good. Absolutely transformed that form of motorsport. Um, the Quattros came along, and I mean we don't need to go into all the details, but they they revolutionised rallying, won the championship, won multiple championships, lots and lots of rallies, and they made rear wheel drive totally outmoded in in rally competition, and everybody had to follow suit everybody else involved in rallying at that time if they wanted to be competitive had to build a four-wheel drive car and that's because of the quattro so what what was the last successful rear drive rally car was it um, was it a mark ii escort or an o37 probably or? a lancia o37 yeah yeah that was still winning rallies while the quattro was around but presumably only on tarmac not not anywhere where traction was needed there might have been a couple of outliers but more or less i'm sure that's the pattern yeah 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 and then even Lancia followed the A thirty seven up with four wheel drive cars. It was, it was just proven that that was the way you had to go. It changed um, everything, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. And again, Piek right at the heart of it. And he was. It was a very small skunk works operation, really, to begin with. Just a few, just a handful of engineers um, building and testing this thing before they presented it to anybody at the Volkswagen board. Um, it might well be the case that if it was a bigger sort of above board project, it would have been deemed too costly or too expensive or the benefits too vague. Um, I don't know. But because it was done in a skunk works kind of way, just a small hardcore of really dedicated, skilled engineers led by Piek, they were able to make something of it. And goodness me, I mean, well, Aldi, for one thing, it built its brand really on four wheel drive, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. Quattro, you know, you still get it on the cars today, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And that was that is a huge part of actually. Audi you know, I, I, am, I am, I am, I've spent the last few days tooling about in, yes. <laughs> in, in an R8, um, and it's so remarkable that it doesn't have four wheel drive that they've actually put a badge saying rear wheel drive on the car. Mm. It, 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 the brand is now so indelibly associated mm. with four wheel drive that when they do a performance car which doesn't have it, they feel the need to say so. Mm. They do. It's amazing. Yeah. And weirdly, and perhaps awkwardly for Audi, it's probably more fun than the four-wheel drive ones. Definitely. <laughs> you, honestly, I'm not, we're not going to get diverted by this, but a, a nice stock standard, which is what I've got, base model rear drive R8, is just, it's lovely. 
Yeah. It's just a yeah, really, really nice thing to tool about in. So lovely. lovely and usable and livable and fast and fun. And yeah, anyway, not what we're here <laughs> to talk about. So Audi built its brand on four wheel drive. Um, it, it was during that period that it became a proper credible alternative to VW, uh, to um, Mercedes and to BMW. Um, and again, PX was central to all of that, Audi becoming what it is today. Um, yeah, I mean, he did things like, you know, the, I, mean, I remember when this car was new, um, the Audi V8. Yeah. You know, the idea of Audi doing a luxury saloon, and it was just laughed at. And, you know, and the Audi V8, it wasn't a great car, but it was kind of like a practice car because that paved the way for the A8. Um, and, it, you know, it just really hauled um, that brand up market and made people think that's okay so that's what an Audi should be that's how we should be thinking of Audi um and it was yeah it was transformative mm. so yeah I mean turning Audi around goodness me that's one of his achievements and it was after his spell at Audi that he went to the VW group um and this is when VW was struggling enormously I've been doing some research and multiple sources have said that the company was three months away from going bankrupt. I was going to say days. Yeah, it really yeah. was. It was absolutely yeah, on its own. Blimey. And Piet came in and turned it around. Mm. Um, and so he did some very pragmatic things right away, like switching the factory from factories, probably from five days to four day weeks, um, negotiated hard with suppliers to drive down costs um, and started implementing the product strategy across multiple different brands that continues basically to underpin the VW group nowadays using one platform across multiple different brands to build several different cars. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the first person to do it by any means. Um, you know, do you remember, you were, of course you won't remember, you were, I was about to say you weren't born. You were just born. Um, but there was the Type 4 group of cars, so an Alpha 164, a Fiat Chroma, a Lancia, a Tamer, and a Saab 9000 in the late 1980s were all bought and built on the same platform but he took that concept and just ran so much further and faster with it and he what he realized is that you know whereas you know the Saab and the Audi and the Lancia and so on and so forth could all have you know their own suspension systems and their own engines and you know and, and they just mm. used you know a base commonality I can remember I did a group test between a Golf a Leon uh, an Octavia and an Audi A3 Yep. And they were all two-liter diesels. And we parked them up and lifted the bonnet. And I just amused myself for a while trying to find a clip, <laughs> anything, which wasn't in exactly the same place and wasn't precisely the same component um, used on all of them. And they were literally the same car wearing different clothes. Mm. So, you know, their, their, their bodywork was different. And I think they used to say, which I don't know whether it was PR or true, but, oh, yes, yeah, we, were, we, we can set up the suspension any way we like. Uh, well, maybe mm. that was true. Maybe it wasn't. But, you know, maybe they could control the tyre pressures. Maybe their spring rates, that sort of But basically, the cars were identical. Mm. And the economies of scale, basically, you only have to design one car. And you get four, which you can mm. sell through four different manufacturers. It was genius. And I bet there would have been some who, <clears throat> who would look at that strategy and go, well, you're cannibalizing your own sales. You know, how can you have a Skoda cannibalizing sales, perhaps from a, an Audi? It's the same car underneath. It, it trades for much less money. Yeah. And, and Piek and the people around him weren't bothered by that at all. That, I suppose no. their view was it doesn't matter if they're buying a Skoda or an Audi or VW or a Seat. They're buying from the VW group. Yeah, I think he also, yeah, well, yeah, that, but I think they also thought that internal competition was good. And I think yeah. um, they also thought that, you know, there are, you know, there are any number of people who probably think, oh, I should buy a Skoda because it's the same car and it's cheaper. But I don't want to have to tell my neighbor why I've got a Skoda and he or she's got an Audi. And whereas other people would just think, who'd spend all that extra money on an Audi when mm. I've got, I, I can, so I think that, I think the only one which he never, really got right with Seat. I never really, I'm not sure I even do now, I, I never really knew what a Seat was, what a Seat was for. I understood exactly what a Volkswagen and an Audi and a Skoda, uh, I think what they did with Skoda, oh my goodness, when oh, I got yeah, in this business, business yeah. um, and it was, you know, Skoda 130 Rapids and that sort of thing, dreadful, mm. dreadful cars. Um, 
and you know what they did with that and then establishing Skoda as a high quality but value proposition um so he still you know they were the same cars but that didn't mean everybody had the same reason to buy one or to mm. want one and i think they appealed to different constituencies and so you know they weren't stealing sales from other because they were actually selling to different people mm. i think it was profoundly clever hi everyone dan here with a message from one of our partners i'll be quick now if ferdinand pieck was still with us today do you think he would knock about online without protecting his devices using a vpn no of course he wouldn't he was far too bright for that Many of us know what it's like to have our details or passwords stolen while we're online. VPNs or virtual private networks protect you from that. If, like me, you travel a lot with work and you find yourself logging onto hotel or airport Wi-Fi networks, you could be at risk of this happening to you. We've partnered with NordVPN to offer our listeners four months free when you buy a two-year plan. And you can get a fifth month free by using our exclusive link, nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler. Or you can click the link in the description of this podcast. That's five extra months completely free. How many of us use the same password for everything? Maybe with one or two subtle differences for different websites and so on. Yeah, I know. That means we're playing with fire. But a VPN can protect us from hackers and scammers. NordVPN, that's N-O-R-D VPN, offers a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can try NordVPN for yourself risk-free. Head to nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler to get five months free of charge. That's nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler. Or click the link in the description of this podcast and be like Ferdinand Pieck. Protect yourself online. So with that kind of strategy, he well, first of all, he saved VW itself, but then just yeah. made the VW group as a whole one of the world's biggest car makers, or the biggest. It's, it's hard to know quite how you count these things. Yeah, but no, you generally, I think it's generally regarded, when you, it depends whether you regard it by turnover or by profit or yeah. by number of cars you make, and it changes from year to year. But yeah, I think, I th- I think yeah, absolutely one of, if not the. Mm. And mm. it's PX's ambition that, expanded the VW group wildly. So downwards, buying Skoda, as we've said, and turning that around into the group's value brand. Yeah. And upwards as well, by buying Bentley, Lamborghini, Bugatti. Yeah. Goodness yeah. me. And so and so clever with it, because he also identified that... I mean, who would have thought before Piek that you could put a Bentley and a Volkswagen on the same, on the same platform? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, he created these... Um, and you know, he he took a company like Bentley, which was terribly underinvested. It was this little cottage industry and crew making a thousand cars a year, um, and you know, completely transformed it mm. into you know one of the most profitable, coveted, desirable car manufacturers on earth. So we'll come back to um, the Bentley tale in a little bit because that's a, it's an interesting story that one. Um, mm. But let's do the the. Bugatti Veyron quickly because that as much as anything embodies PX the scale of his ambition yeah. um, and it's it's as though he was determined that his company the VW group as a whole should be regarded as capable of doing just about anything within automotive so it should build the most efficient cars on one hand you know the VW XL1 that little thing that did Yes. Supposedly 285 miles per gallon or whatever yes, it was. Yes, exactly right, yeah. Um, tiny yeah, the one, little... The one, the one litre car. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, from tiny little city cars up to big luxury cars, and then the world's most powerful production car, the Veyron, 1,000 horsepower, um, quad-turbo W16 engine, four-wheel drive. Eight litres. DSG, yeah. goodness yeah. me. Yeah. Um, I, it's... <laughs> I wonder, though, to what extent Pieck was driven by his amb- his ambition and his ego. There's no doubt that he was, but you have to kind of look at the results and go, well, if these came, from, if these were as a result of his ego, you can't really argue to, with that too much, can you? Because it's astonishing what he was able to achieve. It, it, it is. I think that cars like that. I think he built certain cars because people had said to him you can't do that mm. that's not possible mm. you can't and and, so, and sometimes he'd do it and it wouldn't work um you know for instance you know yeah. somebody would have said to him 
you cannot build a Volkswagen to rival a Mercedes S-Class because it's a Volkswagen. Mm. And he just went, I'll show you. Mm. And he built the Phaeton, which was, in its own way, every bit as good, as certainly as well-engineered and as robust um, and as quiet and as comfortable as an S-Class. But it was still a Volkswagen, and mm. people didn't want it. And I think the Veyron is another one. I think it was it was just him going, I'll show you. I'll show you. You, know, you can't do a 1,000-horsepower car? Oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> um, you know, if you think that back in the day when... You know, the McLaren F1 had 627 horsepower, mm. and he was talking about 1,000. Okay, it's a little bit later, but not a huge amount. And, you know, it had this incredibly delayed, tortured gestation, all yeah. sorts of problems. There were accidents, and the car's design evolved, and it changed, and this, that, and the other. Um, but they stuck with it, and they created, you know, somebody told me that they lost over a million dollars on every one that they made. I don't know whether that's true or not. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, mm. But again, you know, what, what they were left with at the end of the day was a brand which, you know, the very, very wealthy kind of have to have. And yeah, I suspect and, and Bentley, you, uh, sorry, Bugatti even now can charge as much or more than anyone for a car these days. Yeah, more. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and, and I don't know how the Chiron worked out as a business case, but I imagine it's probably done pretty well for them. Mm. Um, in a way that the Veyron didn't. And, you know, and that's the other thing about Pierre, because he wasn't afraid to play the long game. You know, mm. He probably realised that when they took on Skoda, this, you know, this strange um, Czech company, which didn't have a particularly good... Well, you know, its reputation practically was so bad as you know, people would make jokes about it. Yeah. Um, but it fitted in with his vision of what you were saying, of having this all-encompassing car group. Mm. Um, where you know cars everything from the most exotic supercars known to mankind to just basic quality affordable transport you know frankly like the cars designed by his grandfather like the beetle um and everything in between Mm. Um, and, and, and if that took you know a decade to change people's perception of skoda let it take a decade mm. because you'll be cashing in for the rest of all for the rest of time mm. and i think that is so key to understanding what motivated pierre he simply wasn't in the you know stack them high selling sheet market uh, and, and and he was you know we we go on don't we about you know bob lutz being the product guy yeah yeah in 2010 uh, actually bob lutz called pierre the greatest living product guy those there words. you go. Well, okay, I didn't know that, um, <laughs> but you know, if it's good, if, if, if Bob thinks so, then I'm, I'm not going to disagree with him. He, he also uh, said he could never have worked for him. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's also true. I don't think that, any, that, that, that many, very many people would have chosen to do that. But yeah. uh, if you imagine, if you'd done that and you'd survived and you kind of grudgingly earned his respect, what an education that would be. Mm. Yes, wouldn't you just love to have been a, you know, just in some of the engineering meet- meetings? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Pierre, one thing that stands out for me is that Pierre was broad-minded. So he wasn't just obsessed with racing cars like a lot of these guys are. Um, you know, he did the 917, clearly loved motorsport, loved racing, but he was interested in all sorts of other stuff. Um, he was interested in the machinations of multinational car companies. He was interested in the most efficient cars going, in luxury cars, lots of mass market cars produced under his watch. Um, he was simply motivated by excellent engineering. Yeah. Um, and, and that's ultimately what... I think probably that's what it comes down to, his, the success that he had in his career. Also, though, his iron will, he was not one for turning, that man. And also, because of his bloodline, his very unusual influence in the boardroom, they, mm. all those things made him a formidable character. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, there were some failures. Mm. I mean, the Phaeton, that has to be recognised as a, a failure, certain, certainly Absolute commercially. abject failure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, one compelling thing here is that, you know, the group already had the Audi A8, big luxury sedan. Yeah. And yeah, he wasn't worried about launching a new one that would no. sit right I mean, I can, I, can, I, can, I can remember at the time thinking, I just don't understand this. Yeah. And I still don't really understand why. Because... You know, I can understand why you would, if you had Audi, you create 
a Skoda to sit in the same sort of in terms of its sort of size and performance proposition. That you know that that I understand. I don't understand why you thought people would buy a full size luxury Volkswagen. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, but you you'd be proven right. Yeah, but you know, I, but I well, I I, I am, but I, I would have been um, for once, but. He clearly had a plan. It just didn't mm. work. <laughs> yeah, this time. Um, so I, I went back and read um, a story that Peter Robinson wrote for the Intercooler on the Phaeton. And he concludes it by saying, the Phaeton turned out to be the best engineered failure in motoring history. Its legacy today is to exist as a totem to the unrestrained ego of Ferdinand Pieck. Um, which are fairly punchy words. Um, but the, hard, the stories, hard to disagree with them. <laughs> I know, I know. One of the stories about the Phaeton, well told, is that um, PX set his engineering team a very specific target. The air conditioning system had to be able to maintain 22 degrees centigrade inside, while it was 50 degrees centigrade outside, so roasting hot outside, yeah. while being driven all day at 186 miles an hour. And it Which literally, not that it's, and that's not that it would never happen. It, it could never happen. No, no. The car a had a limiter, um, a speed limiter, at 155 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> so it's never going to get up to 186 miles an hour. But I just, it's. It, it, but was that a good thing? So he set this outrageous um, standard for that car. You have to wonder at what cost. At what cost did the engineering team achieve that? I mean, there has to be one. Well, uh, well, I mean, absolutely. You know, the very fact that it had to be engineered to do a speed it would never do. Yeah, yeah, that's why. Um, is, you know, in terms of lettuce, for instance, um, the tyres that you choose mm. for it, you've got to compromise the tyres. Um, you're going to be adding weight all over the place. You know, you're going to have to have bigger, heavier brakes. You're going to have to have bigger, heavier, more robust suspension. You, know, you are compromising the car right the way down the line um to give it an ability to do something mm. that it's never ever going to do because mm. you say it's speed limited it cannot do it mm. it's electronically limited you know program not to do it um i think it's i think it's this sense isn't it that even though you'll never do it even though the car is restricted from doing it it's just that lovely sense of over engineering you yeah. know that it can yeah it's like you know it's the old you know it's the hoary old thing about you know people not using their range rovers off road they don't want to use their range rovers off road they don't mm. need to they just love to know that they could mm. and that the car can do it because it gives them a sense of you know engineering integrity uh, of respect uh, it's like you know anybody stupid enough to have a watch that'll go down to a thousand meters underwater um you know why would Can you, you hold your that? hand up please? Uh, yeah well, um, no i'm not wearing it today okay. um but um you know uh why okay why, why'd they get, i got that watch because it was as far as i could see the most robust watch that had ever been built um and for the way that i lived my life that was mm. i thought a, yeah. a worthwhile reason for doing it um but yeah so and I, and I just love the fact that even his bad decisions as i said earlier were made for for sound engineering reasons he mm. just wanted mm. in whatever it was we can talk about the a2 oh we can do let me just um finish off on the phaeton because yeah. peter robinson remembers asking piek directly what if the engineering team can't deliver on that very specific benchmark that we discussed and yeah Pieck said then I will fire them all and bring in a new team. And if they tell me they can't do it, I will fire them too. <laughs> so talk about ruthless. So to um, him, there was clearly no such thing as impossible. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that's probably exactly right. And he, he was cocky enough or confident enough or had enough of an ego to think that he, he and his engineering teams could figure out anything. Um, so we can talk about the A2 in a moment, but we also need to mention Rolls-Royce. If we're discussing his few failures, we need to mention yeah. Rolls-Royce. Yeah. Um, because that is a saga. And it's, it's super complicated, actually. Um, yeah, let's, let's not get into the absolute nitty-gritty of it, because it's... We it, as don't you say, need it to, is. do we? No. But, but he tried to buy Rolls-Royce for the VW Group. Well, he sort of... Well, yeah. So the important thing to remember is that Rolls-Royce, the company that makes the cars mm. wasn't Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce mm. is a company in Derby that makes 
um, aircraft engines and all sorts of weapon systems and everything else. It licenses it, another company to build cars called Rolls Royces. Um, yeah. And there are various things which, which go with that license. I think the the Parthenon grill went with it, didn't it? And mm. um, The Spirit of Ecstasy. The Spirit of Ecstasy, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that was all part of the deal. And, yeah, and so when Vickers, which owned what it was called Rolls-Royce and Bentley Motor Cars mm. in 1997, put the business up for sale, um, Pierre wanted it. And he wanted whatever was said, whatever was spun, whatever was PR, yeah. he wanted both. He wanted to build Bentleys and he wanted to build Rolls Royces, um, and it ended up not working out that way. So he, on this one occasion, he did get outmaneuvered by BMW, who ended up with, uh, in some weird roundabout way, the rights to build yeah. Rolls Royce cars. But, but uh, it's what what is really interesting about it is, and I think this is some time where the ego and the arrogance didn't help him. I think, and okay, we're, you know, bringing it with the benefit of hindsight, but if he had looked. Yeah. at the commercial relationship of Rolls-Royce PLC, the aircraft engine company, mm. and BMW, who had had a very long and very fruitful relationship with each other. And it was entirely in Rolls-Royce PLC's gift as to who would, who would have the right to call a car a Rolls-Royce. You know, I don't understand why he thought that was a battle he was ever going to win. Mm. Mm. But he didn't really lose, though, did he? Because he came out of it with Bentley and the crew factory. Yeah. And Bentley's done extraordinary things ever since. He got absolutely everything apart from the right to car, car, call a car Rolls-Royce. Yeah. He even got, I think, the spirit of ecstasy and the Parthenon grill. But, it, given, but if he, given that he couldn't put them on a car called yeah. Rolls-Royce, maybe he could have called them a schmoll schmoisel. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, they weren't much good to him. So in the end, I don't know whether we gave them or sold them yeah. to... Um, yeah, one of the most extraordinary things about that deal, and this has got nothing to do with PA, but uh, I, I, is you, you, you know, the Silver Ghost, the original Silver Ghost, yeah, you know, the most famous, um, possibly valuable road car in the world, probably the most valuable road car in the world. It appears that Rolls Royce never realized that the well, BMW never realized that car stayed at crew because they never got it. And that oh, wow. car was owned by Bentley. <laughs> that Rolls Royce was owned by Bentley um, for years and years and years. And I think they did let Rolls Royce use it from time to time. But basically, they missed the Silver Ghost, and mm. it was eventually sold very recently um, by Bentley to a private owner who you and I know. Um, and Rolls Royce never been near it. <laughs> Amazing. They've, they, they, they've lost the jewel in their crown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is extraordinary. That is amazing. Anyway, sorry, I, got, okay. I digress again. So uh, you wanted to mention the A2. Yeah, only because, I mean, it's like, I guess it's like the Phaeton, it's like the Veyron. It's just yeah. another one of these. It's just, it's, it's just another fascinating insight into um, the mind of, of Pierre. Have you driven one? No, I haven't, actually. I mean, they're just, I think they look really cool. Um, but they had this aluminium space frame. And, you know, the problem with doing that is, if you're doing volume, I mean, it's in proper volume, as in hundreds of thousands of cars, it's very, very difficult to do um, with an aluminium space frame, which is why cars who have them tend to be, you know, cars like, well, I mean, the A8, certainly, um, and Ferraris and that sort of thing, which are bought, built in, you know, in very low volumes. And the A2 was Piat going, we're just going to do a completely different sort of car. We're going we're to make it all aluminium. It's going to weigh... I think it weighed something like 770 kilos. It was so unbelievably light. Um, but of course, they had to charge an enormous amount of money to get any kind of return on it. Uh, I think it only had four seats. It was, it was a really, really good idea in theory, which just didn't stack up at all in practice. I think, guess, I guess, like a, like a Phaeton. Um, mm. But there, there's a bit of me, because, you know, they'll never rust, and so they always look quite good when you see them knocking about mm. these days. Um, which would quite like um, an A2. I have no idea what I'd do with it. Um, <laughs> but as yeah, a local smoker, just to stooge about it, I thought it'd be quite it'd good be fun. Good. But again, it was just another example of Piet going, don't tell me I can't do that, because I'm mm. going to go and do it. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I want to talk about some of the feuds that he had during his yeah. life. Um, often with his own family. Proper soap opera stuff. 
just extraordinary. Um, and also, share a few insights about Piek the person. Um, there's some good tales. And again, Peter Robinson, who did spend time with him, wrote for the Intercooler about Piek. So there are some interesting um, quotes that I want to share. But, um, I mean, some of the feuds. So Porsche's attempted takeover of Volkswagen, what, 15 or so years ago. Vendelin um, Wiedeking. Yeah, Vendelin Wiedeking, the Porsche's ambitious CEO, overreached, yeah. building up a 51% stake in VW. In the I group. mean, talk about... Yeah, this, was, this was little yeah. Porsche. Yeah, yeah. It's you like know. us trying to buy the Times. Yes. It's, it, <laughs> it is this tiny little private company trying to just somehow swallow, yeah. you know, one of the largest, most successful companies, and he damn near did it. So he, he built up a 51% stake in VW... But loading Porsche with debt just as the economy turned sour in 2008. Yeah. Um, and it was then that the VW, led by Piek, flipped the deal on its head and VW absorbed Porsche into its portfolio. Yeah. Um, so that was a huge victory for Piek. And the, the amazing thing about all of this is that Piek is a Porsche. Yeah. Isn't that just amazing? Yeah. That yeah, is extraordinary. Absolutely. And you know, Vida King was, you know, had to leave the business. Yeah. I think the, I think the severance package was considerable, so I don't imagine anybody will be feeling too sorry for him. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, again, I can remember at the time, because I was knocking about, um, thinking, this, how can this happen? Yeah. How can Porsche take over Volkswagen? But I, honestly, um, someone like Peter Robinson would be the best person to, to say. Um, but it came so close to happening. Mm, mm. And then Piek turned on his head. It all came to an end for Piek, professionally speaking, in April 2015. Oh, we're going to do Winterkorn now, aren't we? <laughs> yes, Martin <Yeah>. Winterkorn. <laughs> well, I mean, do you want to take on the tale, if you're, if you're familiar with it? Well, only that, you know, it came to a, a him or me um, mm. decision at the top level of the supervisory board, you know, who was going to run the company, who was going to be the company. It was either going to be Martin Winterkorn or it was going to be Piek. And I think to Piek's absolute astonishment, they said Winterkorn. Yeah. The board voted Winterkorn. And Piek Piek left. And And that seemed to be it. Mm. But Piek had one last little laugh stashed up his sleeve, which is that when Dieselgate broke... (laughs) All the rumours are that the person who went to the authorities and said Wintercorn knew all about this was Piek. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that was the end of Wintercorn. So, yeah. you know, he basically, I mean, they both went down. So, you know, Piek went down, but he took Wintercorn with him. There was an extraordinary, uh, an article that Bob Lutz wrote for um, Road and Track. This was published in 2015. And I'm suggesting nothing. This is... Bob Lutz wrote this. He said that Ferdinand Piek, the immensely powerful former chief of Volkswagen Supervisory Board, is more than likely the root cause of the VW diesel emissions scandal. He says now whether or not he actually knew the ins and outs of it um, is up for debate. But he thinks it was almost certainly Piek who created the culture within the VW group that led to the diesel emission cheating scandal. Um, and Lutz shares these stories about Piek being utterly ruthless and merciless with his staff, his engineering staff in particular. Um, and certainly Lutz is absolutely convinced that he is ultimately responsible for that, which was a huge, huge scandal. Um, and even you know, I think, I, th- I think there's so much truth in that. Um, and I can say that because you can't slander the dead. No, um, but, um, but yeah, my understanding of what fundamentally lay behind Dieselgate were that there were engineers who didn't dare say, we can't do this mm. because of the culture yeah. that Piek had instilled there. You know, they were being asked to produce cars um, that were compliant, um, but which showed no degradation in performance and they couldn't do it. Mm. And because no one could turn, you know, no one would say around and go, uh, sorry, guys, I know what you want, but it mm. just can't be done. They thought, well, we'll just do this instead. And then no one will ever know. And I think that, you know, no one will ever be able to prove that one led directly to the other. But we do know um, that it all stemmed from the culture that existed of mm. Volkswagen at the time. And if PX didn't put that there, who did? 
Mm. And I think that all the other people, um, you know, people, guys like, you know, Rupert Stadler, who was the head of Audi, you know, who spent a bit of time behind bars, um, and Winterkorn, um, and, you know, guys like that, they are all products of that approach. Mm. Um, And it was... You know, got a lot of good stuff done, um, but clearly, it was a very, very flawed approach. And um, yeah, eventually turned around and, I mean, did just unbelievable damage to the brand mm. and cost billions as well. Mm. Um, so, Piek, yeah, if you read up about him, you'll find endless tales of him being difficult to deal with and certainly to work for. Um, he. He had either twelve or thirteen children from several relationships. Yes, no I, I, I was sure. going to say, what does he what does he share in common with Boris Johnson? <laughs> Nobody's uh, quite sure how many <laughs> children he's got. It does say something, doesn't it? It does say something. At um, least twelve children from at least four different mothers. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, again, Robbo, Peter Robinson, he wrote about Pieck. Meeting royalty couldn't be this intimidating. I'm beginning to wonder if anyone who works for Ferdinand Pieck has ever had a beer with the bloke. Here at the 1998 Geneva Motor Show, it seems everybody is terrified of the formidable Volkswagen chairman. Um, he goes on to say, he was the most bizarre and complex personality I ever interviewed, and the most intriguing. He calls him an engineering genius, which is fair enough, but also an egomaniac, despotic executive, and above all, a true visionary. Um, Robbo says that he believes that at the core of... PX ambition, he was driven by a basic need to match the fame and achievements of his grandfather. Um, he says, I've no doubt PX succeeded. Um, I think that's a great insight. I really yeah, do. Yeah. PX management style was not to motivate, but to use his enormous power to get what he wanted. Throughout his career as CEO of Audi and then VW, who fired numerous executives or force them to resign in frustration. I just we're not going to see his like again, are we? I think I, I think that culturally it's well you say that Musk. Yeah. I mean Yeah. It's a sort of I mean, it's not a direct parallel, but yeah, um, I mean right. you know, Musk is is still quite what well, I don't know how old Musk is, but you know who knows what he's he's yet to do. He's got a few it's, kids as well, and, he, and he's got a few kids, and 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 he is this sort of Svengali type figure mm. um, who has found a new way to do it. Um, so maybe um, wow. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, you think of of, of Elon Musk and all his, you know, um, fairly what's the word interesting utterances on. <laughs> the media platform formerly known as Twitter mm. um, and you know the stuff he got involved in you, you can't really see um, Pierre ever getting um, uh, involved in that sort of stuff but I, th- I think there is some parallel um, with this total single minded vision mm. and this approach um, and this the self belief and the the inconceivability that you could be anything other than completely right about everything. Mm. Um, mm, it's the same. I think I, I think I think that I think that they share. Um, mm. I was going to um, when he died. I was I was plucking up the courage. I thought I might have even asked the question. I wanted to. I'm, I never met the bloke. Um, never said a word to him. But I wanted to. I wanted to interview him, just about the nine seventeen. Mm. Um, and I, can, I, I must know because I can remember having a conversation with somebody at Volkswagen a Volkswagen AG saying that's pretty much the only way you'll get to talk to him now because if you just say you know I want to talk to you about you know Volkswagen product and strategy and product strategy you just won't be interested yeah. but I said I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to, I don't want to talk about you know anything else I want to talk to him about one car and they went hmm yeah maybe you'd do that and nothing came of it sadly uh, it's one mm. of those things that you sort of say and you know nothing happens I didn't chase it and and then he he died very suddenly didn't he yeah he did yeah unexpectedly um, yeah three four years ago uh, oh, well we've run out of time but what a fascinating guy Ferdinand mm. Karl Pieck um, a hell of a life that man lived his achievements were really second to none actually um, but wow what a character! Can't, 
You can't imagine going out of the town with them, though, can you? No. No, that's a, it's a very interesting point. Was he driven by something quite dark and pernicious? And was there joy in his life? I don't know. You don't hear many stories of him no. hanging about laughing and having a great crack with mates. When, when you say many, I think you can remove the M from yeah. that word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, none at all. Not, not certainly none that I've heard. I've never heard anything, not one thing about him, um, which suggests he had any kind of sense of humour, mm. um, any... I mean, I mean, he may well have had recreational res- pursuits, but I suspect he took all of those pretty seriously. Um, that fun was a word which meant anything to him at all. Mm. A totally driven man. Um, but I, I suspect you could say the same about, you know, Enzo Ferrari. Mm. Yeah, plenty of others. Yeah. Mm. Do you know, we're going to have to do um, Enzo Ferrari soon. Do one of these topics, these podcasts on Enzo Ferrari, because again, another extraordinary character like Piek. Um and actually to all of you listening if there if there is one individual um that you want to hear more about get in touch let us know um and if there's a great tale behind it we'll get stuck in but for now thank you ever so much for listening um and please remember to tune back in next week Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.